Hi, friends. Welcome back to Nate Talks to His Friends About Jesus. How you doing? Oh, man. I got to kind of pump myself up for this because now I, Nephi, write more of the words of Isaiah. (laughs) Shoot. Okay, he's going to read 13 chapters from Isaiah at the beginning, and then he's going to comment on these chapters. Then he's going to skip a couple chapters down to Isaiah 29, and then he's going to comment again on several chapters on the book of Isaiah that he read. This seems to be Nephi's teaching style. Everyone kind of has one. Lehi tells you about dreams and symbolism. Isaiah is poetic. Ezekiel builds models. Monson tells stories. And Nephi reads you scriptures and tells you what he thinks. <sighs> Not my favorite style. But I do love his intent. Uh, I love that he is trying to bring us to the reality as Jesus as a redeemer. Trying to bring us to that covenant to lock us eternally to Jesus, his love and his goodness and his grace. I love that. So let, let's jump in. Now, first, let's review just a little bit. Isaiah as well as most Old Testament prophets, follow a three-step process. First, they point out where people are failing. Then they invite them to change and trust God. And finally, they promise blessings of that trust. Now, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are all part of this accusation section against the Jews. But within this accusation section, he cycles through the three steps of accusation, invitation, and promised blessings, right? Now, Nephi skips Isaiah chapter 1, where Isaiah points out that the Jews have been self-centered, neglectful of those in need, and they just go through the motions wanting to look good rather than actually being good. And then Isaiah invites them to change. Well, we pick up in chapter 2, 2 Nephi chapter 12, where Isaiah is already on step 3, the promised blessings of trust. And it starts like this, and it shall come to pass in the last days. This seems to be a focus of Nephi's writing here. When the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say... Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, and he shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares. So, to put it another way, in the last days, there will be a location where you can commune with God. All are invited to this location. And coming to this location, participating in the rituals of this location, this process of trust, of reliance, this process will transform you. Not not going through the motions, but of actively trusting God. It'll take you from a place where once you were defensive with your sword, a destructive force out to protect you and yours, this process of coming to trust God more than yourself will transform you into an open force of creation, a receptive force of creation, right? Come to the mountains of the Lord's house and take your swords and make them into plows. It is this process that when we trust, when we commune with God, we let go of trying to save ourselves and destroying things and we start trusting him and that process leads to creation. But this transformative process comes with a cost. 
When you stop worshiping yourself, well, the lofty looks of man shall be humbled. Everyone, yea, the proud, the lofty, and everyone who is lifted up shall be brought low. When you start to trust God, you've got to let go of your pride to a certain degree. It just They can't exist in the same space. And he goes on and gets really rather specific here. He says, it doesn't matter if you're a mighty man, a great soldier, a judge, a prophet, a church leader. It doesn't matter if you're a great public leader. It doesn't matter if tons of people respect you or if you're a clever builder or engineer or if you're just a persuasive orator. It doesn't matter that you're exceptionally good looking with all the money to buy all the stuff. I see the last part of chapter 13 about the haughty woman of Jerusalem for this. At some point, you're going to have to give up on the idea that you're just hot stuff. Isaiah says, you're going to have to accept that you are small. Now, this is not a mean thing. When you accept the grandeur of God, the large scope of not only this earth, but the galaxy, the the whole universe then you're going to toss aside those idols. All the things that you think make you distinct and cool, like the trash they are. You're just going to stop trusting anything else to give you worth and value and trust that the infinite God of this universe is going to give you value. Chapter 14 goes on to say, there's going to be moments in your life where things look dark. But God also promises that even in these hard moments of life, you can find a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat and a place of refuge and a covert from the storm and from the rain. So see if you hear what Isaiah is saying so far. He's saying you can commune with God and be transformed, but it is going to require you letting go of how you think you're so special and different and more important than anybody else. Let go of some of these, I don't know, extra things in your life that that you think set you apart as distinct. And and know that that if you do, even in the hard moments, you're not going to have to manufacture happiness. He is going to create that shadow, that shade from heat, that refuge from storm. That being said, sometimes we really are short-sighted. God compares us here to a vineyard in chapter 15. He says, I build a great vineyard on a very fruitful hill. In other words, I put you on planet Earth and it's wonderful. I fenced it. I don't know what that means. Protected you from aliens or something? Killed the dinosaurs? I don't know. Gathered out the stones, planted it with the choicest vine. That's you. And built a tower in the midst of it and made a wine press therein. Like this world, this vineyard should be the most outstanding vineyard. Everything's going well for it. But God says, but it only produces sour, wild grapes. So God says, look, I've given you all this amazing stuff. Just look around planet Earth. I want you to think, what could I, as God, have done more to this vineyard than I have done? 
Obviously, giving you good things just makes you think you're superior. So let's try another path, he says. I'm going to break down the wall thereof. I'm not going to prune things or dig things so that there comes up briars and thorns. And I also command that the clouds, that they rain no rain upon it. In other words, he's like, okay, you're just stuck on on violence and destruction, tearing other people down, thinking how much more important you are than the people in front of you in line and how unjust and unfair it is that traffic is slow and how stupid it is that somebody doesn't like you for you. Just all of this. And he says, let's see if a dose of pain will bring you down and humble you. I don't like this truth, but I think it kind of is a universal truth that we've got to be broken open before we receive God's grace and light. I don't know why. I think otherwise we just keep thinking we're hot stuff, that we're, we're better than other people, that we deserve more. And because of this, we become little and destructive and damned in our progress. It's at this moment of hardship, of difficulty, of brokenness, that in chapter 16, Isaiah is taken to God's throne room in a vision. It's very classic apocalyptic stuff. And it is by God's power that he is transformed. He says that one flew of the seraphim, one of God's servants, unto me, Isaiah, having a live coal, a hot coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid this burning coal upon my mouth. Sounds like a violent action, right? Right? Hot coal on your mouth, that seems like a very sensitive place to have a burning piece of fire put. And look what happens at this moment of difficulty or hardship. And he said, Lo, this has touched thy lips, and thy iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. Notice in the context the sort of sin he's talking about. Sin just means missing the mark. Here, they and we miss the mark when we just try and find our own happiness, self-generate it right here, worship ourselves and our own works and all of that action. He's like, let me take this away from you by making it hard. And after this, after he's transformed by the power of God, he then can become a tool God can use to help lift and help others. Because when you stop worrying so much about creating your own happiness, am I happy? Is this working for me? When that's not, it's not even a thing anymore, we can actually be useful. And so Isaiah hears this voice of the Lord saying, who can I send? Who will go for us? And he's like, wait, I can go. Here am I, send me. And so he goes out with this intention to serve and to lift. But after this experience, Isaiah just goes back right back to describing people depending on themselves rather than God. He talks about in chapter 17 how they want to make a confederacy to fight instead of trusting. They want to team up with other humans thinking that that plan is superior to the plan God is telling them. Instead of trusting, relaxing, relying on God, They're going to fight it. And God says, 
for as much as this people refuseth the waters of Shiloh, just the, the shape of that word is infused with roundness and softness and peace, right? They take counsels together. But I got to tell you, it's not going to come to anything. But even with this um, warning, it, even then in our constant stubborn self-centeredness, like I know you felt it, like you want to be good, but the next day you find yourself just thinking about yourself, all right? In the middle of all of this, the Lord himself, the Lord himself shall give unto you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of government and peace, there is no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So there we go. There's basically the chapters summarized, granted, that Nephi is reading to us to get us to believe in Jesus. We'll get into some more of these chapters next time. But here's the basic theme Isaiah and Nephi want you to understand. When we think we're hot stuff, or maybe even when we think we're garbage, it's just that we think all the time about ourselves. When that voice in your head is saying, I don't like this, get rid of this, that person is a jerk, stop talking to them. Or when it's just like, dude, I'm freaking rock. This is awesome. I'm such a stud. I don't know what your inner voice sounds like. It's probably a mix of both and Most of the time, you just don't even recognize because you're so used to it playing in the background. It's like background noise. But when we are self-centered or self-idolatrous, when our main focus is on me, we're going to get wrecked, Isaiah and Nephi said. But we all have this, it's almost like an inescapable tendency. Everybody. And the solution here, Isaiah and Nephi say, is to see that there is something bigger at work. And once we see the grandeur of this, it will hopefully draw our hearts, our our very beings, to a state of gratitude, a, a state of thanks, a state of just praising God, just like, oh, you're so good. And that small switch from thinking about what I like, what I want, what happened to me in the past, what I want to happen in me in the future so I can feel okay. Moving from that to seeing how big, grand, wonderful, and good it is, that small tick, that small adjustment will bring about wonder and joy in your life. Living life 
thinking about yourself will make you constantly disappointed and jaded. You will constantly feel let down for what you deserve. In the Bible, Saul and David in the Old Testament are great examples of this. When they start their reigns, each of them individually, they're both humble. And humble here doesn't mean self-deprecating. I mean, Saul's as big as a horse and David challenged a giant to -to hand-to-hand combat. These are not wallflowers. But they just don't think it's about them. They trust God and they try and do good for other people. They try to be creators and builders. And things work really well for them. They're able to establish a government and a peace and a protection for their people that has never been seen up to this point among the the children of Israel. But then they fall into the trap that we all seem to fall into. Like when we start with a humble stance of learning and reliance, good things just seem to flow to us. It seems like when we're, we're in balance with the universe, But then there will always be a moment when we start to be like, all these good things, I deserve it. And so we begin to rely more on ourselves. And when things don't go as well, maybe it's because of something we did. And maybe it's just because we live on planet Earth and things are messy sometimes. Like there's always going to be these moments of difficulty. And in those moments it starts to get hard for them to feel grateful. It starts to get hard for us to feel grateful when we feel uncomfortable. In fact, it starts to change. We, we start to feel slighted. Uh, we, we think of us versus them. Don't you know who I am? Why me? And, and when this happens to Saul and David, they react with anger and self-centeredness. Watch it, it will happen with you. You'll have something uncomfortable happen and instead of thinking of the grandeur and the bigness of the universe and God, you'll start to get angry. And instead of being a conscious creator, you'll start to be destructive again. Man, we can't even tell how big it is like with Saul and David. It it turns into this insanely big pile of burning garbage with them. Murder, betrayal, Uh, like so much murder and so much betrayal and so much like intrigue. It's crazy. Like the, even the best soap opera writers couldn't make up the stuff that this starts to go through here. But it's the pattern we all slip into. And so Isaiah and Nephi are just giving you an invitation to be aware of this pattern in your own life. Just start to watch this happen. Can you see when you slip away from being a reliant creator and builder to being a resistant, a self-reliant resenter? Just see if you can feel that or sense it in you. When are these moments that you're just grateful and creativity and love seem to be a part of who you are? When do you close off, put up your turtle shell, resist, rely on yourself and resent the world for not seeing you? 
I just want you to watch yourself today. Notice moments when you find yourself put off by other people and by situations. Notice when you resent how dumb people are. Or notice when things feel unfair or stupid. I'm not even telling you you got to fix it. And definitely I'm not telling you to condemn yourself for having these thoughts. They're normal. That's part of what Isaiah and Nephi are pointing out. Just be aware of those moments. Most of the time that's enough. If you can just recognize, ah, I'm starting to focus on myself here. And then just being aware You can thank God that he has brought you to the awareness of this kind of selfishness. And just that moment, you'll notice it will switch. It will change in a snap of a finger almost. Once you notice it, you can thank God for bringing this to your awareness. And you can open up a little bit more to the sunshine, to the starlight, to the other people around you, to the beauty of this vineyard in which he's planted you. And you can soak in some of the magic of God. Make that small internal shift from selfishness focus to God focus. And I'm telling you today, it's going to make a world of difference. It's powerful. And I love this message from Isaiah and Nephi. It will bless your life. Just try it out. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.